Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given to us, that we can look into your word. We ask that your spirit guide our hearts and minds in understanding of this great and glorious and rich passage, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come this morning to Hebrews chapter 7, and so we're about halfway through the book of Hebrews, and as we do, we remember that this is really a sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon that was delivered, so let's call the author the preacher. And if you were listening to this preacher preach this sermon, you would have several times already heard him refer to Melchizedek, an obscure character from Genesis chapter 14 we'll talk about in just a moment. But this Melchizedek now becomes a central theme beginning in chapter 7 and throughout chapter 7 in understanding who Jesus is as our high priest. And so we know that frequently throughout Hebrews already, Jesus has been regularly referred to as our high priest, a better high priest. And this has bearing on these who are hearing this sermon because they themselves need to know what Jesus can do for them and what he has done for them as their high priest. Now, in order to understand what this chapter is about and who Melchizedek is and why the preacher now uses Melchizedek as an example, I think it's helpful to understand, first, who the hearers were. Who was listening to this sermon? Now, if you were to go to a first century church, you would find that the, those who were believers there came from one of two groups. Either they were formerly pagan or they were formerly Jewish. There was no other third group. Although in other parts of the world there may have been Confucius and and India with its Hinduism, that's not where we're at. So you're either pagan or you were Jewish. If you became a Christian from the pagan world, you would have first come from a world that everybody agreed. There was a uniform sort of theology, if we can say that, 
a uniform understanding of the multiplicity of the gods. And so in the ancient pagan world, they would have known that there's many, many gods. There's not only the Roman world, Jupiter uh, and, and Juno and Minerva and many, many others, but there's also your local gods. There's the gods of the river, gods of the mountain. So this is the pagan world. You would have had to leave all of that now to become this new kind of believer in some unique sect of Judaism that we now know as Christianity. If, however, you came out of Judaism, you would now have to have a rethinking of what it meant to be a Jew. So let's again kind of think about what it meant to be a Jew and what it now meant to be a Christian in light of that. For a Jewish person... You would have understood, although there's many different sects of Judaism, you would have understood that there are certain basic core principles that define what a Jew was. First is monotheism, second is election, and third is eschatology, and then fourth we might add Torah and then the temple. So let's talk about each of these. First, monotheism, there's one God. Every Jew agreed there's only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Christianity now had to now, explain what that meant now to be a Christian, but still believe in only one God. Second is election. Jews knew that they were chosen by God as his special people. So they were chosen to be his people, not only to be those upon whom blessings come, but also now to be those through whom blessings flowed to the world. And so they were the chosen people of God. Third is what we call eschatology or an understanding of the end of days. Jews always understood themselves as being part of an unfolding story. They're in the middle of a story that God is working in with a future that God has planned for them. And then, of course, fourth, we could talk about the Torah, the law. To be a Jew meant that you understood this symbol of the Torah characterizing who you were, what it meant. You had to believe in the Torah, believe in the law, and obey it. And the Torah, of course... The first five books of Moses included instructions on first the tabernacle and then the temple. And so we have the tabernacle first, but then a temple is built. And so in the first century as a Jew, you knew that there was a temple. And when the book of Hebrews was written, probably before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there was still this temple standing in Jerusalem. And so in the temple, sacrifices were made. Sacrifices made by the high priest who made those sacrifices to atone for the sins of you and the nation. So now to become a Christian, you have to rethink about what that meant. So first we think as a new believer in the first century coming from Judaism, you understand not only is God one, there's one Lord and God, but also one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Christ himself, Jesus himself is God in this sense. Secondly, election. God chose not only Israel, but now through Christ, chooses all those who are in Christ. And so now the blessings of being a Jew and part of God's people come to all those who are in Christ, Gentiles included. And that's why we had the debate in the early church about whether a Gentile had to first become a Jew or whether they could become a Christian and not have to obey those particular ritualistic elements of the Jewish law. And then eschatology, God has a plan. The Jews had always looked forward to a plan that God would bring a Messiah. And so the Old Testament prophets talked frequently of this coming Messiah. Well, now Christians say that Messiah came in Jesus. And so we're not simply Jewish people or pagan people, but now as a church, we are Messiah people. We are people who know and understand and believe in this Messiah. 
The Torah still had some bearing in the Ten Commandments and what it meant to, to love God and know God. But the prescriptions for the temple in the sacrifices no longer applied because Jesus is that high priest that makes the final sacrifice on the cross. And so for now, Jewish Christians, they no longer need the temple and its sacrifice. And so to be a Christian who came out of Judaism, you had to give all of that up. And all of your people and all that you knew and everybody you were associated with came from that. Think about the pressure that would have been on a Jewish believer becoming a Christian, or the pressure that would have been on a former pagan becoming a believer. Now think about the paganism. Pagans believed in many gods, but by the time we get to the first century with Caesar Augustus, he now called himself the Divifilius, the son of God. And by putting this out there for many generations, people understood Augustus to be the son of God. And upon his death, to ascending to a position as a god. Now, to the Romans, that didn't seem completely unreasonable. There's many gods. Why not make Caesar Augustus a god? And so Caesar Augustus himself becomes a son of God. And then his adopted son, Tiberius, called himself now Divifilius, the son of God. Later, Titus would call himself Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And so in the Roman world of paganism, you had the emperor who was the son of God and Lord and God. And Christians here saying, no, you're not, but Jesus is. And so you see now this conflict between being a Christian in the pagan world where Caesar's Lord and God or a Jewish believer who now is integrating all that we know from Christ into Judaism and now understanding that Christ has fulfilled all that Judaism promised. And so now in the first century... We have these conflicts. And so because of that, there would have been great pressure on believers in the early church to revert back. And that's what Hebrews is dealing with. The preacher is talking to those of us who ourselves are feeling pressures to go back to a former way of life, to go back to a way of life that's comfortable and safe, where we have our peer groups and our friends, where everything seemed to make sense to the majority of the world. The preacher is now saying, don't do that. And we've seen as we've gone through Hebrews, these warnings. Now think about what Hebrews has meant to us so far as we've come. In the first verses of Hebrews, the writer, the preacher tells us that Jesus is greater than the prophets. In the Old Testament prophets, they spoke only in bits and pieces and in shadows. But in Jesus, we have the final fulfillment of all of that. And so Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. And they see this sense of better. That's a theme that carries through these first six chapters. Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. So that's saying a lot. Well, you come next into the chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, and we see that Jesus is considered better than the angels. Now, the angels in the Jewish world were understood to be those through whom God mediated his covenant, his law. It was through angels that the covenant came. It was through angels that God told Moses about these things. And so they had high regard for angels. Well, the preacher of Hebrews says Jesus is better than the angels. Better than the angels. Even better than Moses. In chapter 3, Moses was a servant of God. A great servant of God and highly revered in the Jewish world. But Jesus is not simply a great servant of God. But he is a son of the household of God. And so Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that Jesus is the son. An heir to the household of God. And that's why you stay faithful and stay committed to what Christ has done for us. 
He's also better than Joshua in chapter 4. Joshua was the one who led the people of Israel into the promised land where God says you will have rest. And of course, we know the rest was only temporary and fleeting because in the promised land, they suffered under uh, battles with uh, the Canaanites and other enemies within the state. So they never felt they had a great rest. But the preacher of Hebrews comes along and says, Jesus is better than Joshua because in Jesus, you can have that final peace, that final rest. You can rest safely in Joshua, in Jesus, which is better than Joshua. And then you come to chapter 5. And throughout, he has told us that Jesus is a high priest, a great high priest, even better than the priesthood of Aaron, the Levites. That Jesus is a better priest than that. Because Aaron was temporary and the priesthood of the old covenant was temporary. But Jesus has a greater, higher, forever priesthood that never ends. And that's how he introduces us to this theme of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the type that we'll talk about of what Jesus is as the antitype, the fulfillment of a priest that is forever and that lasts forever. And so as he works his way through the first six chapters of Hebrews, he's explaining to us the importance of all of us understanding that Jesus is the greatest high priest, the permanent high priest, the forever high priest, who is always making intercession for us. And this is important because one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews is not only that Jesus is better, not only that he is the high priest, but that there's also suffering that we go through. And to remain faithful to Christ, even though we, go under, we undergo this suffering. And so his message is to those who are suffering. Now, in our modern world, perhaps we think we suffer for being a Christian, but not exactly like they did in the first century. So let me just read, first of all, to get this theme in front of you. Stephen Covey once wrote, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the first is to begin with the end in mind. Know where you're going first. And Hebrews has already laid this out in many ways. But in chapter 12, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners and hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's been the message throughout. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted even though you undergo such difficulties in your life. So he goes through these themes we've talked about. We see that Jesus is better than the prophets, than the angels, than Moses, than Joshua, than Aaron. And then we come to chapter 5. And if you just look briefly back at chapter 5, he introduces us now to this theme of, of uh, the great high priest. It would be easier if I had a Bible with thicker pages. All right, here we go. So in chapter 5, verse 6, uh, verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that we've seen already, Psalm 2. And then he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he drops this on them. Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on in verse 10 and again says uh, that uh, being designated by God, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's now said it twice. And you think that he's now going to introduce and deal with the subject of Melchizedek. 
but he can't. Look at verse 11. About this, uh, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so he says, I wanted to talk to you, to you about Melchizedek, but you're dull of hearing. Now, it's normally not good practice to insult your audience. But that's what he does here. He says, you haven't grown enough. You're not spiritually mature enough. And so beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, he deals with at least three areas that are of concern to him to get these people up to speed before he picks up the subject again in chapter 7. He deals, first of all, with the problem of their spiritual infancy. You're still infants. You need to grow, so study harder. And that's a good message for all of us that we've heard. Secondly, he deals with the fact that they need to know how to become more spiritually mature. So he lays out a pathway, a method to becoming more spiritually mature. But then we've seen him also deal with the peril of spiritual apostasy, of these people now turning away from their faith. You've received the good message. Don't give it up. Don't turn away from it. That's his message. And as he goes through these in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he lays out, don't turn away from the faith. And then again, he raises a subject in verse 20, chapter 6, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, he raises a subject now for the third time, and in chapter 7, he deals with it. Now, just think for a moment about why this message of Jesus being our great high priest would have had such meaning and bearing in the lives of these real people. This is not some theoretical sort of exposition, but is instead a clear message to people who underwent real challenges, real persecution, had real problems in being a Christian. And so when the church began in Acts, we know that the church uh, Christians were something of a sect of Judaism. Not very distinguishable, but a part of it with a new theology that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Christianity was seen as a part of Judaism in the first few decades. Uh, now, Jews may have disputed that, and so it was seen as sort of a heresy within Judaism. Judaism had many different sects or groups. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and now the Christians and the Sicarii, who were the ones wanting to rebel against Rome. And so you had a choice of political parties, theological parties to choose from. But Christianity was seen as part of that. You move along further in Acts chapter 18, Paul is charged with these problems. And the proconsul, the Roman proconsul uh, Gallo says, this is a Jewish problem. Leave it to yourselves. Don't bother me with this. And as time moves on, we see now there's a divergence between being a Christian and being Jewish. There's something separating here. And that's when the church really began to feel some sort of persecution from the Roman Empire. And so first under Claudius, the third emperor, uh, after uh, Augustus, there was Caligula and Claudius, Tiberius Caligula Claudius. Claudius in Rome saw that the Jews and the Christians were fighting with each other. So he said, all of you get out of town. So he ran the Christians and Jews out of Rome because of this theological infighting. After Claudius, we have Nero, the young boy emperor who his mother made him emperor. But we know that under Nero, there was a real persecution of Christians. And so this message would have had resonance with those believers under the reign of Nero. And it's at that time when this book of Hebrews was written, when this preacher pre preached this kind of a message. So under Nero, we know the great fire that burned 10 of 14 districts of Rome. And the people of Rome blamed Nero for it. And Nero had found a way of turning the blame onto the Christians because of the 10 districts that burned, four didn't. 
two of the four were populated by Christians and Jews. And so you could say, see, they're the only ones whose houses didn't burn. So he blamed them. And that's when the persecutions of Christians began. And there would have been great pressure to turn back to either paganism or Judaism. So Nero began this persecution, putting uh, fur on Christians to have the dogs tear them up. This sort of a thing was going on. Even Tacitus, the Roman historian, talks about the brutality and absolute cruelty that Nero wreaked against Christians. Now, Tacitus thought they were crazy. Christians were crazy, too, and evil. But he was himself stunned by the cruelty meted out against them. And so we have Nero leading this great persecution. During the reign of Nero, the Jews in Judah began to rebel. And so the Romans had to crush that. And that's when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And when that's destroyed now, Christians no longer want to seek the protection of being a Jew. Because now Jews were the problem. And so Christians had to separate from Judaism saying, we're not like that. We're not the ones who rebelled in Judah. And so Christians now began to suffer persecution under the next emperors or so, Vespasian in particular, and then his son Titus. They were persecuted because of their relationship to Judaism and because they were denying the gods that we all knew existed. And so if you're not willing to worship the emperor, and by time of Vespasian in the 70s, you were, in his essence, an atheist, denying who the true gods were. And so now there's a pressure to revert back to what you were, so that you're protected again and not suffer these persecutions. After Vespasian, his son Titus, then Domitian, a persecution under Domitian in the 90s. Revelation chapter 17 talks about the drunken harlot of Babylon, referring to Rome, that's drunk on the blood of saints. That's a picture of Domitian persecuting believers in the first century. After him, Trajan would also persecute Christians. And Trajan set up a policy, says, look, this is how we deal with the Christians. Pliny was a governor out in the distance, wrote to Trajan and said, we've got these Christians stirring up problems. What should we do? I've tried executing them. I tried all these things. Trajan said, look, we're not going to make it a crime simply to call yourself a Christian. But if you're charged in being one and they don't recant, then you can go ahead and persecute them and execute them. And so under Trajan's policy, you might get away with it, but if you were charged with it, there was a great burden on you now to recant of your Christianity and now reaffirm your paganism. And so for those believers, this is where this message of Hebrews really meant something. Don't apostatize. Christ is our high priest. He's done for us everything we need. Don't leave him now. And so under Trajan, Ignatius himself, one of the great early church fathers and writers and teachers, was executed. He was, in fact, brought to Rome to be executed as a public spectacle. Now, by this time, the Colosseum in Rome had been built, and so now we could do these executions publicly. And so this Colosseum that could hold 50,000 people, we would do it for entertainment purposes. And so uh, Ignatius would be executed in the Roman Colosseum as Romans everywhere cheered his execution. Do you see the pressure of the persecution and the burden it was to stay a Christian when you could just revert, convert back, renounce it, recant, and be okay. This goes on as centuries pass. Marcus Aurelius, the great writer of the Meditations, the intellectual Roman, who wrote such things as saying that uh, I respect a man who's willing to die uh, for what he believes in. Except for those irrational Christians. Why would you die for a lie, uh, Marcus Aurelius said. You've got to die for something rational. Not this insanity of Christianity. And so under Marcus Aurelius, 
who's often viewed as this rational Roman, persecution began to intensify again from 160 to 180. And then you come uh, later down the road to Septimius Severus about the year 200. Septimius Severus now in the year 200, the Romans are feeling great pressure from the outside from the, the, uh, the, the barbarians. They called them barbarians because to the Roman ear, those Germans and others that lived above the Danube, their language sounded like bar, bar, bar. And so the word barbarian was to speak of those whose language sounded like bar, bar, bar. The barbarians were now making an incursion into the Roman Empire. And Septimius Severus, now having won the civil wars, figured out the reason why. It's because in the good old days of Caesar Augustus, everybody was pagan and everything was fine. Now with these Christians here, we've got this problem of these foreign incursions. And the Roman gods would bless us and keep us safe again if we just got rid of these Christians. And so under Septimius Severus, another great persecution broke out where you were forced now to recant or be persecuted or executed. And then we come now to Decius. Decius, in about the year 250, began a persecution and as a proper Roman said, what I want them to do is apostatize. Because under Septimius Severus, many, many Christians were executed. But as Tertullian said, the blood of the saints became the seed of the church. And so many believers grew out of this martyrdom. And the church began to spread and so Decius said, maybe not martyr them, making them a martyr, but instead making them an apostate. And so the message of Hebrews would have great meaning to those under the persecution of Decius when they're said, don't turn away, no matter what it is, because Jesus is your high priest who's done everything for you that you need. And then in about the year 300, Diocletian would begin his persecution. The Roman amphitheater, the Colosseum, would now be filled with the blood of, of believers, of Christians who are persecuted and executed uh, by crucifixions and, and animals, wild beasts destroying them, all for the fun and enjoyment and entertainment of the empire. So you see, Hebrews would have had real meaning in the first couple centuries of Christianity because of what its message was to stay faithful, and to stay true, even through suffering. And that's a message that, Paul is, that the writer of Hebrews, the preacher, is bringing to us. And as he does now, he comes to chapter 7, having introduced us now to Jesus several times as a high priest, but now says, after the order of Melchizedek. So let's think about what that means. If you come to chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, let's stop there for a moment. And if you can keep your finger there, go to Genesis chapter 14. And that's an easy book to find because it's first. So you start with Genesis. Oh, I'm there. Genesis. Now, Genesis 14, beginning in verse 1, is a very complicated story. It's not complicated, but it's hard to read because it includes probably 50 or 60 names and places that are hard to read and pronounce. So let me summarize the story for you. There were, back in the time of Abraham in Genesis 14, a world where uh, there were these, uh, we'll call them kings. They called them kings. They were like tribal leaders. And so along the area of the Dead Sea, there were kings there of their tribes who were subservient to the kings of the East, Babylon. And so they were client states of Babylon. Well, they had had that problem for about 15 years or so and decided it's time now for us to rebel against these Babylonian kings. We no longer want to pay them tribute, pay them protection money. We want our own independence. And so they rebelled against the Babylonian kings. 
Well, four of the Babylonian kings gathered up and came and now destroyed and captured these five kingdoms along the Dead Sea. So the rebellion is put down by the Babylonians. And one of those kingdoms taken was the kingdom of Sodom. And the king of Sodom was taken away. And, of course, we know a person who lived there was Lot. So Lot's taken as a captive by the Babylonian kings. Uh, Catalaomar was the king. Abraham now comes to his rescue. Abraham gathers up 318 men, goes, recovers Lot and his people, and brings them back. And so now after this, Abraham has defeated these Babylonian kings and their tribes, and now there's peace again in the land. Abraham, now you come to Genesis chapter 14, and verse 17, it talks about Abraham returning from the defeat of Ketaleomar. And then in verse 18, and Mel, now it just jumps right here, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out... So Abraham comes to a place that's uh, mentioned there, the Valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. And that's near where modern-day Jerusalem is, Mount Moriah, just kilometers from Moriah. And so the Valley of Shavah. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, the High God. And he blessed him. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham and says, Blessed be Abram. By God the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And so this story appears, and when you go on to verse 21 after that, it goes back to a discussion of the king of Sodom. And so this passage of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is laying out there. For over a thousand years, for 1,500 years, it's laying out there. And in those intervening centuries, uh, there's much discussion among the Jewish people about who this Melchizedek is. Much speculation. And some speculated uh, of many things. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's speculation that Melchizedek is uh, an angel. An angel that will one day lead the sons of righteousness against the sons of darkness. And so they thought Melchizedek is an angel. Uh, and so in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a couple of them that talk specifically about Melchizedek at great length. So he's spoken of a lot. Uh, later, Josephus and Philo and others would have a theory about who Melchizedek is. Many in modern commentators think, first, he may have been the Holy Spirit. Uh, others think, no, it's a Christophany. Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And so we have Melchizedek as Jesus in the Old Testament. And then there's other speculative ideas that he's just a divine virtue, some pagan idea that's creeped in. We can ignore that. So there's these different ideas about Melchizedek. But I think it's better to understand Melchizedek from Genesis 14 as a real person, a real king, and a real priest in this age. And so that's a story from Genesis 14. We see it there. And we come again to Hebrews chapter 7. Again, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And then it goes on to discuss a little bit about this name. He is first, Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. Now, in this discussion, Melchizedek is spoken of as the king of righteousness, the word the name Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words, uh, Melchi or Melech, which means king, 
or and tzaddik, which means righteousness. And so names we know are often combined in this way. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. So he's described here and portrayed as the king of righteousness. And then it says he's also uh, the king of Salem uh, or Shalom. Salem, from which Jerusalem would eventually come, is the same word as Shalom or Shalom, which means peace. And we know that. And so Melchizedek is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And he's portrayed here as that. And so in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, he is the king of peace. In verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so we see this Melchizedek being discussed now. And it says that he has no genealogy. And that's true. If you go back to Genesis 14 and look, we're nowhere told where this Melchizedek came from. How did he become a king? And how did he become a priest of El Elyon, the Most High God? Who made him a priest? He simply appears in the biblical record as a great king of righteousness and a king of peace. Now, resumes mattered in the ancient world. In order to do anything, to be anybody, you had to tell people who you were. And who you were was not what you had done, but where you came from, who your family was. So your resume mattered a lot. And Melchizedek has none. And that's why in Hebrews 7.3, he describes him as one who has no genealogy, no connections to anything. Your resumes mattered. And Melchizedek had none. And so now he's able to use Melchizedek as a picture. And this is where we get this idea of what we call typology. Typology, T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y, typology. Melchizedek is seen as a type of Christ and Jesus as the anti-type or the corresponding one. So Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus and Jesus is the fuller reflection of it. To understand typology, we could uh, use a number of examples, but one we could use is Numbers chapter 21, where there we see the story of Moses with the Israelites in the wilderness, and they're rebelling against Moses, and they're whining, saying, why'd you bring us in the desert? We're suffering out here. We have no food, no water. It's horrible out here. And so they're whining not only against Moses, but against God himself. And so God's answer to straighten them up is to send this small plague of snakes Now, if there's any sort of way of shaping people up, it would be the the snake treatment. And so these snakes come, bite people, and they're dying. And this reminds them of a one true God that will take care of them. And so God now says to Moses, you take one of these serpents, a fashion of serpent, and you put it on a pole, and you hold that pole up. And you tell the people, when they look to that serpent on the pole, then those who are bitten will be healed and will live. And so that became a way... For the Israelites in Numbers 21 to show that they trusted God, look upon that serpent on a pole and you will be healed. That then becomes a type when you come to John chapter 3 and verse 14. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus takes that picture of the serpent on a pole in the Old Testament and he uses it now as a as a type for himself, as the anti-type, so also I will be lifted up on a pole. I will be lifted up on a cross, and those who look to me will be healed. 
And that's what this meaning of typology means, the type and the anti-type. So that's kind of the basic idea. And so we see now Jesus as the anti-type of Melchizedek. Jesus now is a king, just as Melchizedek is a king. Jesus is now a priest, just as Melchizedek is a priest. And so we see Jesus as this type. This same idea of, uh, of Melchizedek uh, in the Old Testament is not only in uh, Genesis chapter 14, but also in Psalm chapter 110. And Psalm chapter 110 is another place where we see this coming together, the idea as, of Jesus as a king. Psalm 110 is what's called a royal psalm. It was a psalm written for inaugurations. And so Psalm 110, just a couple of verses here. The first words of Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the Lord says to my Lord, there's two words used there. And if you have it open, you see the first Lord is in small caps, four capital letters, the Lord. And that's translating the Hebrew word uh, pronounced Yahweh. Uh, Jews don't say the name. They say Adonai instead. But Yahweh, that's the Lord there in all caps. The next one that's used says to my Lord is in lowercase. And that's the word Adonai. And so the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, that's now going to be applied to Jesus, you will put your enemies under your footstool. And then you come down to verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this idea of Melchizedek as prefiguring, as shadowing, as a type of the coming Messiah who would be the king now becomes apparent here. The psalmist in 110, David, is speaking of God himself making a future coming king who will be Lord forever. And so in Hebrews 7, he's now expounding on this theme he's developed in chapter 5 and chapter 6, that there is a coming king who will be Lord forever. And that's this coming one who is Jesus. And that's the meaning of this initial passage in Hebrews 7, that there is this coming king. Now, all people are looking for a king, wanting a king to come who will be the final ruler. Uh, there's all sorts of, uh, in history, we can see ways in which people throughout the world have this vision, these, these uh, uh, stories, mythologies of, of someone who would be that great king that comes. And perhaps the reason they have that is because there is a great king that we all know about. And that king is Jesus. And God has given us that sense in our own heart that there has to be one who is the final and perfect and true king. And so Hebrews 7, 1 to 3, lays out this idea of Melchizedek as a type of Christ, as a king, and Jesus as the king that fulfills that. But also intermixed in this is the idea of Jesus also as the priest, and Melchizedek as a type of priest. And so again, it says in verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Jesus now, like Melchizedek, is a priest forever. And it speaks there again about him not having a genealogy, not having any connections. Now again, not only was it important to be able to trace your genealogy in order to be somebody to show who you were, but it was particularly important in the Old Testament that you could prove before you could be a priest that you were of 
the tribe of Levi and of Aaron. And so you couldn't be a priest unless you could show through the genealogical records who you were. Now, this became a problem when, uh, in this, at the, at the Second Temple period, when uh, the, the Jews in the year 597 had their temple sacked by the Babylonians. They were carried away to Babylon. The temple destroyed in 585. And then a time comes, the Persians release them from Babylonians, and the, the Jews come back now to, to Jerusalem. And so in about the year 537, the Jews are now back in Jerusalem, but they need to figure out who gets to be a priest. Seventy years have passed, and all those who were priests before us have now passed away. So we're back in the land now, and we need to establish the priesthood. But who are the priests? And so they go through the genealogical records, and they find there's a group of people there, men who said, oh, I'm of the family. And they may or may not have been, but Ezra doesn't care. So in Ezra chapter 2, he describes these events, and says that these men came forward and said, I, I'm a priest. I'm of this family. And Ezra said, we went to the genealogical records and could not find your name in them. Could not trace them to you. And so therefore, you can't be a priest. You can't be a priest after the order of Aaron because you can't prove you are of the seed of Aaron. And so they were excluded. And so only those who could prove they were genealogically connected to the priests of the Old Testament, back to Aaron, only they could be a priest. And so this Melchizedek, and in chapter 7, verse 3, the preacher lets us know he can't trace a genealogy. Now, you might think that's fatal. And so for a Jew, think about that. If he could not trace a genealogy, then how can Melchizedek be a real priest? And how can Jesus, who we say is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, how can Jesus himself be a high priest if he's not of the tribe of Aaron? Jesus is a tribe of what? of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, not of Aaron. And so the Jew would have had the objection, Jesus can't be our high priest because he can't trace his lineage back to that of Aaron. But Jesus is something more than the high priest. He is the great high priest. Now, if we were to tie it together, and if we just look briefly at what continues on in chapter 7, verse 4, there are several things mentioned here in, these, in this passage uh, that Show us what it means to be a priest. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the part patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. So the first thing is, we know Melchizedek was a priest because Abraham gave him a tithe. And you only tithe to the priest. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though they also are descended from Abraham. And so only priests could receive tithes. And so Abraham is paying a tithe to Melchizedek. That means Melchizedek is a priest and Abraham is not. And then it continues in verse 6. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So Melchizedek not only receives tithes, that's the first thing, but secondly, he blesses Abraham. And if you go back to the passage in Hebrew in Genesis 14... It says uh, there in chapter 14, verse 18, uh, uh, Baruch Abraham, I bless Abraham. Now, it's the greater one that he says here that blesses the inferior one. So Melchizedek is greater than our father Abraham because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Again, showing his priesthood. Uh, again, in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one to whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, 
who received tithes, Levi paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the preacher of Hebrews says, even Levi, the priest, in this theoretical sense, paid tithes to Melchizedek because Levi was a son of Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So now Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is pictured as this great high priest to whom even our great father Abraham submitted to his priesthood. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews is able to take this passage from Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 verse 4 and show that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these promises. Jesus is that great priest, that great high priest forever, as chapter 6 verse 20 says. He is the great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is not a temporary priest after the order of Aaron, but a permanent priest after this type that is Melchizedek. Now look at verse 11 just briefly, and we see him set up the argument that develops in the continuing passage. Verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Think about that question. Rather than one named after the order of Aaron, if the priesthood of Aaron could have met the need for sin through its sacrifices, there would not have been need for a new priest, a new high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. But, he says, and we'll see this argument developed in much greater detail, the priesthood of Aaron could not make that payment, could not take care of sin. And so we needed a new high priest that's not after the order of Melchizedek, that is after the order of Melchizedek and not after Aaron. In the Old Testament, you couldn't have a king and a priest in one person. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, you remember the story there of Saul, who was impatient because Samuel wasn't there at the time of battle when the Philistines were coming. And so Saul said, well, we can't wait for Samuel. I'm going to go ahead as king and do the sacrifices before we go to battle. And so Saul did that. And when Samuel shows up, he says, I can't believe what you did. As a king, you are not entitled to do the sacrifices. It is disallowed. In fact, now you're going to be punished because of it. You will not be king in Israel any longer. And that was the severity of it. But how can Jesus be king? The thing, the problem, you can see the inherent conflict between a king and a priest. The king is the one who makes a law. The king is the one who executes on the law who judges those who violate the law. The king is the one who provides protection. A priest, on the other hand, is the mediator between the people and the king. The priest is the one who seeks forgiveness for violations of the law. The priest is the one who seeks peace and mercy from the king for those who violate the law. And so we see this conflict between being the king and the priest. Now, in the Roman world, there was no difference. Julius Caesar was not only maybe not the first emperor, the first uh, princeps, but he was also the Pontifex Maximus. Caesar Augustus was the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of the Roman pagan religion. And they saw no difference. I get to decide the law, and I get to execute the law, and I get to decide who gets forgiveness. And not many of you will. But we see Jesus now as that perfect king and that perfect high priest. And that's how these ideas come together. Jesus is the one who is the king, who is the judge, but who is also the one that makes intercession on our behalf. 
who seeks forgiveness and mercy for us. And so in John chapter 17, when Jesus is in the garden and we know that the crucifixion is, is near and he warns Peter and the disciples, stay faithful, stay true, don't leave me. And they do. Peter denies Jesus three times. But Jesus says to Peter, I'm praying for you. Even, I, even though I know you're going to apostatize, you're going to give it up for a time, I'm praying for you. So Jesus is that perfect one who brings together perfect justice and perfect mercy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah that is the perfect king, but he's also the lamb that seeks peace and brings peace in the land. And that's how this writer of Hebrews is bringing this message to these first century Christians. He's saying to them who are pagans, don't turn back to paganism. You've got no intercessor there. But in Jesus, you have one who's praying for you, who's looking after you. To those who are Jewish believers, don't turn back to Judaism because the great intercessor, the great Messiah has come, who's speaking on your behalf for us. And that's the message that Hebrews has. Clearly a powerful message for the first century, but I think also a very powerful message for us today to think and to know that even though we suffer for being Christians, even though we're challenged or ridiculed or whatever it may be, not like they were in the first centuries, but we know that we have an intercessor for us. So why is the story of Melchizedek important? Not because it's simply theoretical. You might wonder, how does this matter to me with my challenges, with my fears in life, with the suffering in this world, with all that I go through and the worry that I have, the answer is we still have a great high priest in Christ who is praying for us and looking after us. This message of Melchizedek will now be developed in verse 11 and following as he explains in greater detail how Christ serves as not only our king, but also as our great high priest forever. Let's stand with me, if you will, and let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word from Hebrews chapter 7, this message of the great high priest Melchizedek, who is a type of the true high priest forever in Christ. We thank you that this day we know that we have a high priest that stands for us, that argues our case on our behalf, that seeks mercy and peace with God through his sacrifice on the cross. And so we ask, Lord, that this day, as we leave, we know that we will submit to this kingship and this great high priest in Christ. Every moment of our life, may we be ever faithful, never turning our backs on this great promise you've made to us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.